Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we have equal reality and treating alcohol with NAD+. But first up, here's the news. Giving phones the finger. An American security team have created a synthetic fingerprint that will unlock two-thirds of phones, like an old-time skeleton key. A skeleton fingerprint? The researchers say this security problem arises because fingerprint scanners on phones don't take an image of the entire fingerprint. They just sample 10 sites of the fingerprint, which is how fingerprints have been analysed since it was introduced to policing in the 19th century. Most phones store 10 partial fingerprints rather than a whole fingerprint to check against before unlocking. A partial fingerprint is a small sample of a whole fingerprint. The team started with a database of 800 fingerprints that were often recognised as other fingerprints by commercial fingerprint scanners. From this, they generated over 8,000 partial fingerprints. Just over a thousand of those could be mistakenly recognised as some of the fingerprints in the original database. These results were fed to an artificial intelligence system which changed the partial prints very slightly and then tested how many matches the new partial print would make. If the new slightly changed partial print matched more fingerprints than the original, it was kept. If not, then another change was applied. They kept this going until they generated a single fingerprint that could be wrongly recognised more often than any of the other prints. This new partial print can open two out of three fingerprint-locked phones without the researchers ever seeing the original fingerprint of the owner of the phone. Even worse is that because fingerprints were enshrined as 100% perfect before the introduction of forensic science, fingerprint evidence is often provided to courts by experts who unscientifically don't provide the margin for error in their matches. They claim 100% accuracy, just as they did in the 19th century. Such accuracy is not possible. Until recently, lawyers would advise clients to plead guilty if the fingerprint evidence was against them, even when they maintain their innocence. Now, lawyers are beginning to challenge fingerprinting evidence. Since phones started using fingerprint scanners, the financial industry has taken up the technology and started using phones to authenticate people for making and receiving payments. Zwipe and MasterCard have developed a credit card with a fingerprint scanner, which also relies on partial prints. Fingerprints suffer the same problem as any other biometric way of authenticating people. If the database is hacked, then you can't change your body as easily as you can change a passcode. If you want to protect your phone, then lock it with a code instead of your fingerprint. The paper was titled Masterprint, Exploring the Vulnerability of Partial Fingerprint-Based Authentication Systems. 
and was published in the journal IEEE Transactions on Information Forensics and Security. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Virtual reality started out in the 1990s as a fad that made a lot of people sick. The graphics were too slow to keep up with people moving their heads. And so the mismatch in what they expected to see and what was on the screen made some people throw up. Now in the 21st century, graphic generation speed is caught up, and virtual reality works for most people. It's still pretty clunky, but we're now at the stage of looking to use the technology for more than entertainment. Annie Harper and Brennan Hatton are co-founders of a new business called Equal Reality. I visited their office in Ultimo and began by asking them, what is Equal Reality? So Equal Reality does social training using virtual reality. And what sort of virtual reality are you using? We're using the Vive, largely because it is monumentally better than the alternatives. Yeah, the the Vive is significantly better than Google Cardboard or really any mobile virtual reality out there right now. We're not so much strictly just on the Vive, but we're on just the the latest and greatest of the consumer-ready virtual reality hardware. So when somebody uses your system, what happens? What do they do? So currently we're focusing on inclusion training using VR. So the person would receive data visualization around what unconscious bias training is in the first place. And then they would experience what that feels like and then get a follow-up report on what they experienced. Yeah. So what we really do is put you in the shoes of a minority to experience what it feels like to receive prejudice in the workplace. So the way you get into someone else's shoes is you put on the headset and then what happens? So first off, we engage the head and then we engage the heart. When we engage the head, we express all the data around what unconscious bias is, which is what leads to lack of inclusion unconsciously. And then we put someone in the experience of what it feels like to be on the receiving end of that so that they can emotionally understand it. And so what that looks like is you're looking in the mirror and you're looking at someone who's about to experience some bias. So first we introduce you to the character that you're playing. You're standing in front of a mirror and you hear a backup noise giving you information around your character. After that, you go into a social simulation where you experience some of the biases that that person's often experiences but that you may not have been exposed to in your life. The point of this is to really showcase blind spots that people have. Basically they're role-playing someone who goes through a scenario where they'll experience some bias so that they'll understand what happens. So some of the current flaws of play acting is that you're in a group with other people who you know and there's a certain element of performing to them, them performing for you and um, compensating for each other as if it's a game. When you're in VR, you have the illusion of being alone and being within a video game, so it feels a lot more real. And we also bring an added element of data collection where you can speak your mind and we can collect what you're thinking over time. 
And what happens with the data? I think that's one of the most exciting things about this. So just to use the implicit bias test, for example, which is currently the standard testing for unconscious bias, you look at two images and you click on the first one that your mind jumps to. When you start getting into areas with technology, you can start recording voice samples, what the emotional states are, what people are saying, and you can start to correlate these things over time from many different perspectives. And I think there's a very huge persuasive storytelling element there. Why social training specifically? So in the past, humanity is really focused on intellectual training. And you can see trends where every generation does increase slightly in their IQ capacity. But there's been equal studies that things like emotional intelligence and social intelligence are, are not increasing. With the integration of technology into our future society, things that were once automated tasks are going to be able to be taken over by computers and by robots. And humanity is going to have to rethink how we interact with the concept of work. I really think that work is starting to move towards more creative, more social elements and Internal qualities like resiliency and ability to interact with other people is going to become increasingly more important in the future markets. So we're, we're at a really good point right now with virtual reality, where it's allowed us to unlock a new type of learning that we haven't really been able to do anywhere near the level we can now, and that is, is social learning. So by having technology like virtual reality, we can actually put you in the shoes of someone else, put you in new experiences and experience from other perspectives and other people's perspectives. And, and this, this in itself is really, really important because that, that's gonna really help us move into this new, new area of education where we can help people understand each other better, understand their own emotions better, understand how to work better with other people and how to work better with your own body and your own mind. And that's gonna be really crucial, like what Annie was saying. When technology gets to the point where our technical skills aren't going to be so important for getting the job done but more it's about our skills to interact with the technology that is getting doing the technical skills for us and our ability to interact with each other and so having those social skills to be able to interact with each other and be more efficient together is going to be just as crucial as having the technical skills to interact with the technology so as we automate more of work the human element will be more important drastically more important I saw a documentary on TV once that really appealed to me, and it was tracking over the course of several children's lifetime what made children most successful. And a lot of it was the ability to be resilient, the ability to be patient, and a lot of these internal qualities were really the underlying factors that led to success. And currently, these sorts of mental traits are not necessarily taught, in school, you're just lucky enough to have parents who are like that or you stumble upon it in psychology books. And I really think that the future of this education, once we can start teaching these concepts to society as a whole, is going to really give us a huge new boost as far as the peak of where our society can go. I think having the whole of society at a higher level of emotional intelligence is going to be so incredibly beneficial for the survival of the human race. If we look at what our greatest dangers are right now and the threat of nuclear war and conflict and self-destruction, that is really what we are addressing, is we're addressing empathy, being able to understand other people's perspectives and being able to work together better. Well, Annie and Brennan, thank you very much.
Thank you. Thank you very much, Ian. That was Annie Harper and Brennan Hatton from Equal Reality, applying virtual reality to teaching people social intelligence. And now the final part in the series of interviews with Nady Brady about NAD+, which is short for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. Nady spoke to me about using NAD+, intravenously, to treat alcohol addiction. NAD+, is a basic building block in cells. Basically, to produce ATP, which is energy, and improve mitochondrial function and DNA repair, you basically need NAD+, as a cofactor or substrate for most of these pathways. Now, NAD is also important for alcohol detoxification. In the presence of NAD, alcohol becomes acetoaldehyde, which is how you break down alcohol in the liver by alcohol hydrogenase, which is an enzyme. Now, why NAD is also important now is in USA, it's a part of alcohol detox therapy. So people would come to specialized clinics where they'll be given a certain amount of IV intravenous NAD over a certain number of days or hours. And then what the customer and the clinicians are noticing, right, is that after a certain period of time, these people no longer seem to be, uh, seem to have that desire to, to drink alcohol. So they actually get off a certain addiction, like, like opioids and, and, and the alcohol. So it also must be playing around with the memory reward system pathway in the brain, which no one has ever looked at. Which pathway? The memory reward pathway. There's a part in the, there's a, a section in the brain where it maintains your happiness. So it just, if that section fires up and it gets activated, to make you happy. So certain things make certain individuals happy, whether it's success or, or alcohol or things like that. Is that connected with dopamine? Yeah. yeah. So the NAD plus treatment, the intravenous transfusions that they're doing in the US, take away people's desire for alcohol and presumably they don't get a reward anymore. Basically, the way I see it, it's maintaining the, the brain's a, a neurochemistry. Because when you're depressed, you have increased serotonin and all these other things that play around with your brain. You have also increased excitotoxins which actually destroys part of the, your neurons. So by maintaining NAD homeostasis, you actually maintain the optimal function of the brain circuitry. We had ethics approval in, in America, it's IRB, so of, of patients uh, getting IV infusion, NAD. So we're trying to see what is their basal, the basal levels of NAD, or does it really increase NAD levels? Because though it's been given to people, a study to show that IV infusion increased NAD has not been done, so we wanted to show that and see from that what other NAD-related metabolites are altered and to see what that is doing to the whole homeostasis of the body. For example, is it purely good in every way or is there something that's negative about it so that we can provide a proper uh, treatment window that's, that meets individual needs? Because there's, there's two NAD pathways, basically. There's a DNOVA pathway from uh, uh, tryptophan, which requires up to seven to eight steps, which leads to NMN and then leads to NAD. Does that mean if you have food that has tryptophan in it, or if you have tryptophan supplements from the health food shop, which is basically food that's high in tryptophan, that your body goes through a whole lot of steps that turns it into NMN, and then that becomes NAD+, which then helps repair your cells and give you energy? There is also the second pathway, which is, from my papers, is not the main pathway, but also occurs as a backup pathway. It's, it's the NAD salvage pathway, so it actually recycles NAD precursors that are being formed back into NAD. So that NAD salvage pathway involves NAD being produced from nicotinamide, nicotinic acid, nicotinamide riboside. Those are the two pathways to get NAD going, and in your cells it produces energy, it repairs DNA, and the absence of NAD can cause 
processes that bring on inflammation? Correct. Inflammation, oxidative stress, apoptosis, the genes, the genetic expressions, things like that. Basically a catastrophe. NMN is, is a converg converging point between the DNA pathway and the salvage pathway. And if people want to find out more about all of the NAD work, yeah. should they look for the website for the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging? Oh Yes, they can do that. They can read some of my publications. Uh, some of them are open access. Many everyone can access them on their personal computer at home without any subscription free to any journal. Yep. And there's also some review reports that they can find on Google or they can just email me. Right. That's uh, n.brady, so n.b-r-a-i-d-y at unsw.edu.au. Well, Nady Brady, thank you very much. Yes, uh, thank you, thank you, Ian. That was Nady Brady from the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging at the University of New South Wales, talking about intravenous NAD plus treatment. And finally, RoboHand. Leo Lim is in his final year of mechatronics and biomedical engineering, studying ways of improving the functionality of 3D prosthetics. I began by asking him how he chose the RoboHand project. So for me, I always had that desire of, I guess for my thesis, doing a project that really impacted the developing countries or people in the developing world. And I had been to Thailand and Cambodia, to those countries, in my sort of before choosing the thesis. So I have seen sort of that sort of side of amputation. So I realized that maybe I wanted to work with sort of developing low cost prosthetics for particularly for developing countries. So how did you start? You're printing a design from an open source prototype on a 3D printer. So the way I started was I talked to my supervisor at uni and she's never really had a request like that before. So she sort of helped me look into it and see if there were any sort of companies that wanted to work with that. We found Engineers Without Borders and they were very keen on sort of that aspect of research. So from there they hooked us up with a company called Robohan. And when I talked to Robohan, they were kind enough to give me the files to print for their open source. So they have files online already, but it was just easier to get it straight from them and to get, I guess, an idea of what they wanted to help improve as well and to see if I could help get on board with that as well. What were your main aims? What did you want to make the Robohan do that it wasn't doing so well before? So my main aims with improving this prosthetic was allowing the prosthetic to use I guess tools that were too small for the ham to grasp. So particularly was to eat, so cutlery, and to write, so pens, pencils, etc. And so that was my main aim, was to think of a way to allow um, prosthetic users to use those tools because a lot of the time, low-cost prosthetics, they don't have the functionality to be able to pick up small objects. And so it means that they, the amputee has to, I guess, adjust to using their other hand if it's less dominant or they just have to adjust by having somebody else feed them or write for them. The hand that you printed out, it works with cabling so that when you flex your wrist, it tightens up, is that it? Yeah, that's exactly it. So the way it works is that you have a set length of cable, which goes from a gauntlet, which is attached near your forearm, and it travels all the way to the end of the fingers. And so effectively, as you bend your wrist, you're causing more tension to be built up in those cables which pulls the fingers and contracts the fingers uh, all simultaneously. And so they weren't able to, well on the one hand you'd have to keep your wrist bent to hold things, on the other hand it's not a very 
good grip for narrow things. Is that why you needed to develop uh, an attachment for the hand? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think definitely when I first got the prosthetic, trying to put tools in that were a bit smaller, I had to use my other hand to put it on and I had to uh, grip the prosthetic really tightly um, just to be able to hold on to prosthetic. So I wasn't able to actually use the utensil at all. But I, I think from that, I was able to think of a way to yeah, design an attachment which had the grip to hold the tool so that I could use the tool for different, um, different applications. And so you've got a clip for a tool holder attached to the back of the hand. Mm, yeah, that's exactly right. So I mean, sort of a sort of like a clamp, which is attached near the knuckles of the index finger and middle finger. And so this allows the tool to be put into an orientation, which is fairly intuitive, especially for eating. It simulates, I guess, the normal way that a, a normal hand would hold a utensil to eat. And you've actually tried writing and eating with these? <laughs> Yeah, I actually have. Um, I, I put like a paintbrush in, I put a marker in, a pen in, and they all wrote really well. Um, and also I put a fork in and I was able to fork food. I, I was able to uh, hold a steak, around 250 gram steak, which is more than I guess a normal person would usually eat. But yeah, it was good. What do the parts cost to make one of these hands with your attachment? Um, so the parts are actually really cheap in terms of raw materials. The I guess the prosthetic itself was definitely around under $30 and it was all made out of PLA and then you've got the, the clip attachments which they, when they were 3D printed they were maybe about less than a dollar, about a dollar and then on the clip attachments you've got some cable ties and you've got some rubber from a tie repair kit and all those come up to maybe around $4.30 for the attachment itself so overall your prosthetic is going to be costing you under $30. And will your improvements be incorporated into designs that do go to the third world? I think definitely. I'm definitely going to give my designs to Roborhand and see where they take it as well. It definitely is, I guess, up to them to see if they want to incorporate it in. But I think the beauty of 3D printing and open source is that you can design something that you think will suit somebody and you can put it out there. And if people think that it suits them, then they can print it. If it doesn't, then they don't have to print it. So it really is up to the end user whether they decide that this is something that they want or whether it is they decide that it's something that they maybe don't find is functional enough. So they're going to maybe wait until something is better that comes out definitely going to put it out there for people to use. If they want to use it, they can. If they don't, it's, it's all right. And about how long were you working on this project? So this project itself, I was working on it about a year, but there were some complications which hit around uh, six months. So overall, this project itself has sort of been in developing for around six or seven months. So what's next for you? For me personally, I'm about to graduate, so I think thinking about what's what there is to do out in the world. I think doing this project has definitely given me an eye-opener about the different, I guess, areas of help that are needed in the world, especially to do with uh, medical devices and assistive technology. But personally for myself, I think I'm just going to take it slow and see where life takes me. Well, Leo Lim, thank you very much. No worries, thank you very much. That was Leo Lim speaking at the Sydney Biohackers meeting about RoboHand. And here, dedicated scientists faced the challenge. Years of heartbreaking failures and setbacks only stiffened their resolve to conquer the problem.
from the laboratories of your name here had come the key to the secret that had baffled man through the ages. No longer a dream, but a reality was your product here. Now for the first time, limitless horizons open for the nation. A brighter future unfolded. Thanks to your name here. Employment boom. Not only in the vast modern facilities of your name here, but in factories everywhere. Geared to supply this vital new industry that is reshaping our economy and transforming the lives of millions. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Send a voice memo from your phone or use a tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and we'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Support the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incomatech.com. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two MVR in Nambucca Valley, and three MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.